If you go to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be, be in verses 13 through 23, the end of the chapter. I, uh, I love y'all a lot, and I count it a great privilege to get to preach God's word to you, always do. And uh, we've had to be pretty flexible lately, and I appreciate everybody for being really flexible with times and space and where we're at and everything that's going on. I praise God we're not a seeker-sensitive church, especially with a new Lord's Supper bread. <laughs> we're not a seeker-sensitive church. Matthew 2, we're going to read verse 13 through 23. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these words. Thank you so much for being a great God to us and allowing us to hear these words. Your word is precious to us, Lord. 
Your word is precious. It's like honey, sweet to our taste. It's like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And Lord, we ask that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to us this morning. God, please help us to see what we need to see. And especially help us to see Christ and the glory of Christ. We love you so much, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the Gospel of Matthew uh, comes from God, uh, from the Holy Spirit. And it's meant to give us a picture of uh, the whole Gospel of Matthew. This is who Jesus is. So Matthew is introducing us to the man Christ Jesus, especially Jesus as king. And especially Jesus as king as the promised one, the Messiah that was promised to come, the one that fulfills the Old Testament. This is the way the Gospel of Matthew lays out Christ to us. And so far in this gospel, up until this point, we've seen a genealogy uh, at the very beginning that connects Jesus, that he's the one that was promised to come from Abraham way back in Genesis 12. He's the one that was promised to come from David, a descendant of Abraham, and in the lineage of Christ. So we have a genealogy here. We also have, as we keep reading in Matthew chapter 1, the, the miraculous virgin birth, that Christ is the one that was uh, promised by Isaiah to be born of a virgin. That there was this little miracle that was going to happen where he was going to be born into this world and yet it's a miraculous birth. He should be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, fully God, fully man. And then, of course, in the next scene, the next information we're given is that the wise men come so that, so that we know that this Christ is connected to the prophet Daniel. He's connected to the prophet Daniel and the things that Daniel prophesied about. And these wise men travel 800 miles from the east to bow down at the feet of a child and worship him. So this is who we've got. This is who Jesus is. And then we come to the passage that we're in this morning. So real quick, just the plain sense. What's, what's here in this passage? What we see in this passage is Herod wants to kill Jesus. He wants to kill this promised child. The one that the wise men came to worship. Herod wants to kill him. And so he sends soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all of the children two years old and under. But God warns, warns Jesus' parents in a dream and warns them. And they flee out of Bethlehem and they head to Egypt. They head to Egypt. And then in the second part here, beginning in verse 16... We see that Herod's there, and we actually see that scene where he moves into Bethlehem and slaughters and kills these babies. He slaughters and kills these babies in an attempt, in an attempt to kill the Christ. And then, of course, after Herod dies, a third scene here, beginning in verse 19, after Herod dies, it becomes, uh, it, it, it becomes clear to them uh, by a dream and by a call from God that they need to move back towards Israel. So they do that. They move back towards Israel. And specifically through another dream, they move to Nazareth. They move to this place called Nazareth. The place where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Now, let me just start off by making a broad observation here on this text of Scripture. This passage of Scripture fits into a big 
uh, uh, amazing, a big, beautiful theme that's found all throughout God's Word. Maybe you've heard about this before. This big, beautiful theme of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. This massive uh, cosmic battle, this cosmic war. This begins in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You remember it, right? Where Satan has tempted Adam and Eve. They've walked away from God. They've rebelled against God. And in their rebellion against God, God comes to them and speaks some words. And one thing that God says, he says something to the serpent. He says something to Satan himself. He says, I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put war, enmity, between you, Satan, and this woman. Between your seed, Satan, and this woman's seed. And he, this woman's seed, is going to crush your head. Although you crush his heel. And so this war has been declared. And this, this war of the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent attempting to squash out, to kill off that seed so that the Christ never comes, that becomes the, the battle, the cosmic war that undergirds the whole rest of the Bible. So that's Genesis 3. You see Genesis chapter 4 when Cain kills Abel. Do you understand that that's a satanic scheme? The seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. That he's attempting to kill off the seed of the woman, but he can't do it. He comes anyways. You see the same thing in Exodus chapter 1 when you've got Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's trying to, you remember it, Pharaoh's trying to uh, kill all the male Israelites. Kill all the male Israelites, all the male babies that are born, that are Israelites. Do you see the, undergird, the, the war that undergirds that? That's the seed of the serpent. Satan himself attempting to squash out this seed. To squelch this seed of Christ that is to come that's going to crush Satan's head. That's, that's in the Exodus. You see it in, in, uh, in Esther at the very end of the history of the people of Israel. Whenever Haman puts forward this decree that all Israelites should be killed. Exterminate them. Genocide. Kill all of Israel. Why? Do you understand what's going on there? This is the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. He wants, to, he wants to eradicate these people. Why? So that the Christ will never come. But what we see over and over again throughout the Old Testament is he can't do it, he can't do it, he can't do it. Even up to the very end here in Matthew chapter 2, the Christ is born. And what does Satan want to do? Kill him while he's a child. Do you see that? That underneath Herod... Attempting to kill Jesus as a child is Satan. This is the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. He wants to kill him off. Now we get a summary of this sort of thing in Revelation chapter 12. Listen to this. Revelation 12, 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So here it is, a woman and her seed. And she's about to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. We find out down in verse 9 that that great red dragon is Satan. It's the devil. 
with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. You see his plan? The seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. She gave birth to a male child. He couldn't stop it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Does that sound familiar? That's Psalm 2. That's the king. That's the Christ. He's coming to rule with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished 1,260 days. Do you see this picture that in Matthew 2, you've got the serpent, Satan himself, standing over the woman ready to devour the child to stop the Christ. And he can't do it. Seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. He can't kill off this child even, even as a baby. He can't kill off the Christ. Herod tries and Herod fails. That's a broad observation of what's in this passage. Okay, you can't kill off the Christ. It's a broad observation. But let's zoom in a little closer. And I want you to understand this passage can be easily broken up into three sections. Three sections. And, and it's... And those three sections are from a repetitive phrase. Did you hear it? In Matthew 2, verse 13 through 23, did you catch the repetitive phrase? If you look at verse, here's the three sections. Verse 13 through 15 is about Jesus as a child being taken to Egypt, this exile to Egypt. And at the very end, look at verse 15, last part. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. So think about that phrase. Why did this happen where Jesus went to Egypt? Because one day God's going to call Jesus out of Egypt. And this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. That's Hosea 11.1. 1. What the prophet said that out of Egypt I've called my son. The fulfillment of what the prophet said. That's section one. Section two is verse 16 through 18. If you look at verse 16 through 18, it speaks about Herod killing those babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill the Christ. And at the very end, look at verse 17. Look at what it says. It's a repetition. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And he quotes Jeremiah 31, 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So here's the repetition. Section 1 is a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. 1. Section 2 is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.15. Section 3 is verse 19 through 23. And this is where Jesus, because of uh, circumstance and because of a dream that God gave his parents, Jesus lands in Nazareth. And this is the place where Jesus is going to receive his upbringing in Nazareth. Why? And he tells it, look at, listen to the repetition, verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, here it is, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So that what would be fulfilled, that it would be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets, 
he would be called a Nazarene. And so there's this repetition of fulfilling what the prophecy has said. And all three sections in this passage of scripture fit into that fulfillment theme. Now that fulfillment theme is all over the Gospel of Matthew. Do you remember that? That literally, th this phrase is over and over again. That it might be fulfilled what the prophets have said. Over and over again throughout Matthew, there's a fulfillment theme. 61 Old Testament verses are quoted more than any other gospel in the gospel of Matthew. There's a fulfillment theme here, and this fits right along with that. Now, I want you to think about this. Up to this point, the Old Testament prophecies, prophecies that have been mentioned have been pretty easy to understand. Okay, In chapter 1, Isaiah 7.14 was quoted. That, that Jesus is born miraculously of a virgin just like the prophet said it says that in chapter 1 verse 22 just like the prophet said in Isaiah 7 14 that he would be born of a virgin that's easy to understand right you read Isaiah 7 14 and you say okay I read this and I understand a Messiah is coming that's going to be born of a virgin okay the second one here in chapter 2 verse 5 this is the second time that something like this is done where an Old Testament verse is quoted it quotes Micah 5.2. It's easy to understand. You read Micah 5.2 and you understand that there's a Messiah. Christ is going to be born. And he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It's easy to grasp. You understand it very clearly. But what I want you to understand about the passages we're in today, these three prophecy fulfillments, they're not the same. They're, they're, there are some difficulties here that I want you to see. I want you to understand the difficulties of these three prophecies especially compared to the first two and others in this book. So let me, let me help you see that by, by just turning to those scriptures, okay? So we're going to start. The first one, the first one, out of Egypt I called my son. That's why God brought Jesus into Egypt. To fulfill the prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. But let's go look at it in Hosea 11.1. I, I want you to see this difficulty in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. This is where he's quoting from. He says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, Egypt, I called my son. Now here's what I mean. You read, you're reading through Hosea, right? Let's just say you're reading through Hosea. You come across chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when you read Isaiah 7, 14, you knew clearly there's coming a Messiah that's going to be born of a virgin. But you read this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Do you read that and immediately think, that's saying a Messiah's coming that's going to come out of Egypt? And I think the obvious answer is no. Who's the son in Hosea 11, 1? Who's the son? Who's God's son here? God, God's son here is Israel. Now, you read Matthew, and Matthew's saying... To fulfill this prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. I'm bringing my son, Jesus, into Egypt so I can call him out. So I can exodus him out of Egypt. My son, Jesus. But you read this, and the son is not that coming Messiah. The son is Israel. And it refers back to the son Israel. Back to, you can go read about it in Exodus. When they were exodus out of Egypt. 
In fact, you keep reading in Hosea 11, it says, verse 2, The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, then burning offerings to idols. It goes on to talk about when God's son, Israel, was called out of Egypt, they kept rebelling, they kept walking in evil and wickedness, even after they were called out of Egypt. So the question is, when you read this, and Matthew quotes it, in what way is this a prophecy of the Christ? That's the difficulty. We'll come back to it. All right, the second one, if you could go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Now, again, what's happening here, if you think about Matthew, Jesus is exiled into Egypt because he's going to be exodus out of Egypt eventually. Jesus is exiled into Egypt. And Herod attacks Bethlehem and all the babies two years old and under that are male in an attempt to kill the Christ. And you imagine how sad, you imagine the weeping, you imagine the, 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 um, how distraught these people are in Bethlehem. And he says, this is to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah said. And he quotes this verse, Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Look at it. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, I want you to think about that. When you read through Jeremiah and you come, on, you come to chapter 31, did you read Jeremiah 31, 15, and did it enter into your mind, hey, this is a prophecy that one day there's going to come somebody in an attempt to kill the Christ that kills all the babies two years old and under in Bethlehem. And I see you guys shaking your head like, no, that's not what I, when I read Jeremiah 31, I didn't think about that. There's a difficulty. What, in what way is this a prophecy of Christ? In what way is this a prophecy of what's being fulfilled in Jesus? What's happening here is this chapter also speaks about Israel as the son of God. Israel is God's child, is God's son. And in Jeremiah 31, God's son Israel is being exiled out of Judah to Babylon. They're being taken captive, exiled to Babylon. And there's great sadness. There's weeping. Now, I just want you to see the difficulty. We'll come back to it. But I just want you to see the difficulty there. Okay, go back to Matthew 2. Now, if you thought those were difficult, wait till you hear this one. Matthew chapter 2. That third section, okay? That third section where Jesus as a child is guided by God to Nazareth. He's going to have his upbringing in Nazareth. It says at the very end, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Anybody know what's difficult about this one? Go do a word study of Nazarene. And you won't find an Old Testament verse that says, he shall be called a Nazarene. You won't find that verse. You can go search for it. I'll search for it. Go search for it. And there is no verse in the Old Testament that says he would be called a Nazarene. Yet here it says, this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, that it might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So do you understand the difficulty here? Now, here, let me tell you some wrong ways to try to solve these problems, to try to deal with this difficulty. This would be some wrong ways. One would be um, apostolic error, right? Like the apostles were just, they just made a mistake. 
They went and grabbed some verses in the Old Testament, they misinterpreted it, and they wrote it in the New Testament. That would be a wrong way to deal with this difficulty, right? Like, I mean, and especially three in a row. I mean, do we really think they're that dumb? That it was just an error. They just, oops, uh, quoted the wrong verse from the Old Testament. But we also don't need to, go to, to settle it by some sort of apostolic divinity like the apostles are God and they can just take any verse they want from the Old Testament and as long as it points to Jesus, they can make it mean whatever they want. That's not true either. In fact, that's, that's your pathway to, to allegorizing scripture. It's a you know, horrible thing. Just take any verse in the Bible and make it mean what you want as long as it points to Jesus. It's a pathway to allegorize the scripture, but they're not doing that. So that's the wrong way to deal with it. So I want to try to give you some categories to help you think through how to understand these prophecies that are being fulfilled in Christ. So let me get you, if you're, if you're writing something down, write down these two words. Write down predictive prophecy versus, and write down thematic prophecy. Predictive prophecy versus thematic prophecy. Now, you don't have to use those names. You could use another name. You could, you could instead of thematic prophecy, you could say historical prophecy. But e either way, I just want you to understand the idea. The idea in a predictive prophecy is a prophecy about the Messiah that clearly predicts something that's going to happen. It's a predictive prophecy, okay? Clearly predicts something's going to happen. Now, your thematic prophecy or your historical prophecy would be Reading the history of the Old Testament and through those rhythms, those repetitions, those patterns that God's laying out just through history, there's something prophetic about it. It's teaching you something about Christ. So you understand this. Like Malachi 5.2 says there's going to be a ruler born in Israel. I mean, born out of Bethlehem. That's a predictive prophecy. There's going to be a ruler born in Bethlehem. It made a prediction. And it's true. And it came true. But think about like uh, Genesis chapter 22, right? Where, where Isaac, Abraham's going to offer up on, on the, as a sacrifice his son, his only son. He's going to offer him up as an offering. And then God stops it and puts a lamb there in his place. Now, now, what is that? Is that a predictive prophecy? No, that's a thematic prophecy. It's in history and it's telling us something about Jesus. And there's no real certain prediction there but in the history and what God's guiding Abraham to do what God is guiding Isaac to do the way he's laying out these rhythms and repetitions of sacrifices for sins is this thematic this theme in the Old Testament is a is a prophecy about about the Christ so again you take Isaiah 7:14 that's a prediction Isaiah 7:14 is clear that there's 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 going to come a Messiah that's going to be born of a virgin. That's a prediction. But Hosea 11.1, 1, that we just read a moment ago, Hosea 11.1, 1, it reaches back and grabs a theme that runs through the whole Old Testament. And what is that theme? That God has a son named Israel, and out of Egypt God called his son. And there's a theme in that that's going to point you to the Messiah. It's going to be prophetic in that history to point you to the Christ. So I want you to think about this for a minute. Because it's glorious the way God does this. How does God give a, a predictive prophecy? How does he do that? He puts his word into the mouth of a prophet who speaks his word and it gets written in the scriptures. And there's your prediction. It's beautiful. It's glorious. 
Now, how does God give a thematic prophecy, a historical prophecy? How does he, how does he give that? God literally designs all of history and the movements of kings and the movements of nations and, and, and he's, his providence is overall in such a way that you start noticing these patterns and these rhythms and repetitions in the Old Testament that are telling you something about the Messiah. That may be even more glorious. But they're both glorious. And so what you have in our passage today, think about it, we got three prophecies fulfilled in our passage today. And the first two prophecies are dealing with the Exodus. Out of Egypt I called my son, grabbing that theme of the Exodus of God's people. And it's dealing with the exile. We see that in Jeremiah 31, that, that these people are being exiled and there's sorrow because of it. We'll come back to that. But what you have in the first two prophecies are from Exodus to exile. Now think about what that means. Think about your Old Testament. First 17 books of your Old Testament are the history of what? The history of this nation Israel. And so from Exodus, what this passage is telling us is, is from Exodus to the exile. That's the whole, the whole history of the people of Israel. Listen to me. All of this is a theme that's pointing to the Messiah. All of it's a theme that's prophesying the Christ. Now, both passages in Hosea 11, Jeremiah 31, the first two prophecies, call, say, say that God's son Israel was Exodus and exile. And Matthew says God's true son Israel, Christ, has been exiled and he will have an exodus. Now, let me, let me just go a little further with this. I just want to explain this and we'll dig into the passage. So, with this understanding of predictive prophecy, thematic prophecy, you can think about it like this. Israel, the history of Israel, it, it contains prophets, that's, that's for sure, but the, but the history of Israel is prophetic in itself. So think about that for a minute. The history of Israel contains prophets, and there's predictive prophecies there, but the, the, the history of Israel itself is prophetic in the way that history has been laid out and recorded for us. There's a guy named Francis Folks, I believe is how you say his last name. And he said it like this. Maybe this will bring, help bring some clarity. Francis Folks said, Predictive prophecy often, indeed, depends on the interpretation of a particular historical situation. But the writing of history, okay, think about the history of the Old Testament, the writing of history was itself prophecy in the broader sense in the broader sense of the understanding of God's action in history. It is thus that the New Testament interprets the Old. How does the New Testament interpret the Old? Listen, it's thus that the New Testament interprets the Old. It interprets not only its predictions, but also its history. Predictive prophecy, thematic prophecy. The history itself is prophetic. So just think about this. So one last thing, and then we'll, we'll dig in tighter to this passage. Think about it like this. Have you ever been reading through your Old Testament, and have you ever thought, why am I reading about the history of this nation Israel? Why am I reading? Have you ever thought that? Why am I reading about this? In other words, why not just give us a book that has all, I mean, there's hundreds of them. Just give us all the predictive prophecies about that Messiah that was going to come. Just give us all the predictions. Why not just have a book like that? Why are we reading from Genesis to Esther? Why are we reading the history of this nation? Why? 
And there's at least two reasons. One reason is what we were talking about a moment ago. This is a record of God protecting the seed of the woman until the seed comes Christ. It's one reason. But a second reason is this. And this is getting into thematic prophecy. A second reason is this. We're reading about the history of Israel because when God is forming these people, when he exodus them out of Egypt, and he's forming their movements and what they're doing. It's as if God is taking a paintbrush and putting it on a canvas. And he's drawing a portrait that's saying something about the Messiah. The history itself is prophetic. Have you ever noticed that when you read something about Abraham? And it seems like it gets repeated in the people of Israel. And then it gets repeated again in the life of, Je in the life of Jesus. You ever notice that? And this is what Matthew's drawing our attention to. The history itself is prophetic. This is thematic prophecy. Okay, so let's consider back in Matthew 2. I hope you have those categories. Now let's consider each one of these sections, okay? Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. So number one, Matthew 2, verse 13 through 15. If you want to title it, you could call it Jesus and the true Exodus. Out of Egypt I called my son, the true Exodus. Now, in this passage, Jesus is being put forward to us as the true Israelite. Now, you've heard Jesus is the better and greater Moses. Jesus is the better and greater King David. You've heard that. But this passage is showing Jesus as the true Israelite, the real Israel. That's the way it's presenting Jesus here. Now, think about it. The verse it quotes in verse 15, Hosea 11.1, 1, it says that Israel, God's son was called out of Egypt, Exodus. And the context surrounding that verse in Hosea 11 is that when they were Exodus out, they continued to rebel against God. And in Matthew 2, verse 13 through 15, God purposely brings Jesus into Egypt so that he can Exodus him out. And he says, my son, this is to fulfill this theme of the Old Testament, my son will be called out of Egypt. So this is speaking about, think about what's being communicated here. The real son that is being exited out of Egypt, the real son of God, is not Israel, the nation, but Israel, the Christ. Jesus is the true Israel that's been called out of Egypt. Now just think about that as you keep coming through Matthew, okay? Israel had an exodus out of Egypt. Well, so did Jesus. That's what we're reading about here. Jesus had an exodus out of Egypt. Israel passed through the waters. Remember they passed through the Jordan. The Jordan was stopped. Well, Jesus, we're going to read about it in just a little bit in Matthew, that Jesus also passed through the waters, baptized in the Jordan. Israel was tempted 40 years in the wilderness. We're going to read about it in a little bit. Jesus is tempted 40 days in the wilderness. Israel failed. Jesus is victorious. Israel had a Pharaoh killing all the male children. It's connected to their exodus. Jesus had a Herod that's killing all the male children connected to his exodus. Israel had a slaughtered lamb connected to their exodus. Remember the Passover? Before their exodus out, it says, it says, I want you to take a lamb and take the blood and put it over the door. And God says, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you. Listen, Jesus had a slaughtered lamb connected to his exodus too. You go read over in Luke 9 and see the, 
the, the transfiguration moment where Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking. And it says they're talking about what? They're talking about the exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. See, Jesus had a slaughtered lamb connected to the exodus he, he leads out as well. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They failed. Jesus is the true light to the nations. He's the true and real Israel. And this is what Matthew is communicating to us when he says, look at that. Jesus brought into Egypt so he could be called out of Egypt, out of sun. This, this is what's being fulfilled. Just like Israel was called out of Egypt, my son, so my true son has been called out of Egypt. He's the true Israel. Now, real quick before we move on, how can we become a part, brothers and sisters, how can we make sure we're a part of this true exodus out of darkness? How can we make sure we're a part of it? Is it by, should we go join the nation of Israel? No. We, we must be united to Christ. And when we're united to Jesus, which is marked by those who have repented of their sin, put their faith in Christ. You're united to Christ. He's the head. We're his body. We're united to Jesus, and therefore we're exodus out with him. In fact, Galatians 6.16 calls the church the Israel of God. Romans 2, verse 28, 29 says, He's not a Jew who's one outwardly, that external circumcision, but he's a Jew who's one inwardly, that circumcision of the heart. So how can you be a part of this true Israel and this real exodus? How can you be a part of it? You you must be united to Christ. And praise God, so many here are. So in summary, on this first point, the summary, Hosea 11.1 is not a predictive prophecy. It's pulling. Hosea 11.1, quoted in verse 15, is pulling from an Old Testament theme that God's son Israel was exodus out of Egypt. Even so, Matthew says, that points to Christ, God's true son, exodus out of Egypt. Number two, verse 16 through 18, if you want to put a title on it, you call it Jesus and the exile. Jesus and the exile. But please, in parentheses, write suffering with hope. So what I want you to think about in this passage, Jesus and the exile, listen to me, suffering with hope. Suffering with hope. So let me just ask you this. Think about it with me. Is Matthew saying, when he quotes Jeremiah 31, 15, is Matthew saying that Jeremiah 31, 15 is a predictive prophecy that Herod would kill babies in Bethlehem? And the answer is no. And I think it's obvious that it's no. And one reason it's obvious is just because of the location here, right? The babies that were killed by Herod, the concentration there is in Bethlehem. But what does it say in the prophecy? You look at it in Matthew 2, verse 18. It says, a voice was heard in Ramah. It's heard in this other place, Ramah. So, So apparently we're not talking about a voice will be heard in Bethlehem as babies are slaughtered. No, that's not what it's saying. You go read in Jeremiah 31, a voice was heard in Ramah. It really happened. It's a historical account that in the exile, the people of God, you can read about this in Jeremiah 40, the people of God, Judah, were carried into this city, Ramah, before they were carried captive to Babylon. So a voice of weeping is going down in Ramah. Why? Because God's son, Israel, is exiled. 
so it's not a predictive prophecy here. So I want you to think about, Jer I want to try to give you the context of Jeremiah 31 without, without us reading all of it, okay, for time's sake. So you think about Jeremiah 31, 15, and this prophecy that's quoted in Matthew 2, 18. What is the context around this verse? And I want to give you three words, okay? Three words. Exile, suffering, hope, okay? What's going on in Jeremiah 31, which is quoted by Matthew, is exile, suffering, and hope. Here what, here's what I mean. Go read that chapter, and you see that Judah is being exiled, taken captive, conquered by Babylon. It's a sad moment. It refers to Israel as God's son. It's a sad moment. It says, God, it says he was a father to these people. This was God's son, and now they're being exiled. It's a sad moment. And so that brings me to the second word, suffering. That's what verse 15 in Jeremiah 31 is describing. The suffering, the voice heard in Ramah, weeping and mourning. The children are no more. That really happened in Ramah. That weeping really went down. So there's suffering there. And yet, here's the thing. You go read Jeremiah 31, and this is the most obvious thing about it. It's, it's not without hope. It's a suffering expressed in verse 15, but with great hope. You go read it, and there's this language from God to his people that I'm going to bring you back again. I'm going to bring you back again. Literally, right after verse 15, it says, don't weep. Don't weep. Because hope, and it mentions hope coming down the line. This is the chapter where we're given the promise of the new covenant. That I'm going to make a new covenant with you that's not like the covenant I made with your fathers. That your sins are going to be forgiven. They're going to be remembered no more. And all of my people shall know me, says the Lord. A new covenant, he says. So here you have this exile and this suffering. And yet, it's with great hope. And so, here's what I want you to understand. You read Jeremiah 31. And this is not a predictive prophecy. But Matthew is drawing our attention to a biblical theme of exile, suffering, and hope. And as he draws our attention to this theme, he's telling us, listen, that points to Christ. That's prophecy about Jesus. That history of these people is about Christ. Now, have you ever seen this theme before? Think about it for just a minute, this theme of exile, suffering, and hope. Remember Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And in their rebellion, they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. They were booted out, kicked out. They were exiled from this dwelling place with God. And so they're suffering. The whole world is plunged into darkness. They're suffering and weeping and pain. But guess what? It's not without hope. Remember the verse? There's coming one that's going to crush Satan's head. It's not without hope. That's Genesis 3. You go to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, you've got Israel. Okay, you remember it. They're exiled into Egypt. This is before they, they were Exodus. They were exiled. So they're exiles in Egypt. And listen, there's great suffering in Exodus 1. The male children are being slaughtered. The people are enslaved. There's deep suffering. And yet not without hope. Not without hope, God's about to raise up a man in Moses and deliver these people and bring out his people and eventually bring out the Christ. It's not without hope. So it's exactly what we see in Jeremiah 31. The people of God, Israel, have been exodus out. They've, they've, they've walked on this earth, and now they're about to be exiled. And he says, not without hope in Jeremiah 31. They're suffering, but not without hope. And Matthew shows us that this theme points to Christ. 
Think about it. Christ, right now in our passage in Matthew 2, is being exiled. He's being exiled into Egypt. And because of that, these babies are being slaughtered. They're being killed. His suffering is sorrow. It's horrible. But listen to me. The Messiah is still alive. It's not without hope. It's going to happen again 30 years later when Christ is going to be exiled from the presence of his father. When he says, my father, why have you forsaken me? He's exiled from the presence of his father. And it's great suffering, suffering like you've never seen as the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus instead of on us. Suffering and yet hope because in that death of Christ so we can be saved. And it's the way the church lives right now. We live as exiles. And therefore, there's suffering in this life, but it's not without hope. It's a theme throughout the Bible. And Matthew says this theme points to Christ. This theme points to Christ. Third section, last section. Verse 19 through 23. If you remember, this is where Herod's dead now. And God through... His guidance brings Jesus as a child into Nazareth. He brings him into Nazareth to be, to be brought up there. Now, did God guide him there purposely? Yes. It's obvious, right? I mean, it's, it even says, if you read uh, verse 22, it says in the second half of verse 22, and being warned in a dream... He withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So God guides him purposely to Nazareth to be brought up there. The question is why. Well, verse 23 tells you why. Verse, verse 23 says, here's the reason. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, like I said, where's that at in the Old Testament? That he would be called a Nazarene. Where's that at? Where's that exact phrase? And the answer is that exact phrase is not there. But this is what this says. This, this is what this is saying. When you're reading the Old Testament revelation and the prophets about the coming Messiah, he's saying the prophets, the prophets say this, that he'll be called a Nazarene. That's what it says in Matthew 2.23. Now, I want you to notice in verse 23 here, you see how prophets is plural? So it doesn't say Hosea said it. It doesn't say Jeremiah said it. It says this is what was spoken by the prophets, plural. All the prophets said this. The, the prof, this was the word of the prophets that he'd be called a Nazarene. But where's it at? So what we're seeing here is Jesus has fulfilled the Exodus theme of the Old Testament. Jesus has fulfilled the exile theme of the Old Testament. And now we're seeing Jesus has fulfilled the Nazareth theme of the Old Testament. The Nazareth theme. Now let me try to explain what that means. What is the Nazareth theme? Jesus being called, and notice it says that here. It doesn't say all the prophets said he grew up in Nazareth. It says, no, no. It says all the prophets said he would be called something. He'd be called a Nazarene. Okay? Jesus being called a Nazarene, as was prophesied in the Old Testament, and all the prophets said it. Listen to me. It's not about his location. It's about his reputation. 
It's not about his location where he lived. It's about the way he was received by his people. He'll be called a Nazarene. You know what it means to be from Nazareth? You know what it means to be called a Nazarene? It's not like being called a Bethlehemite. It's not, it's not like being, being, uh, uh, being from Jerusalem or being from Egypt. This is to be from Nazareth. This is a, a hick from a hick town. A nobody from nowhere. You remember John 146, what Philip said? And Philip's from Galilee. Nobody even likes Galileans, but even the Galileans says this about the, the Nazarenes. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? John 146, can, can, can any, what's it like to be called a Nazarene? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? A nobody from nowhere. So I want you to think about that for a minute. Throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospels, throughout the book of Acts, and even today, Jesus, Jesus is not called Jesus from Bethlehem. Okay, that would give him, that would give him some, uh, some royal credibility. That's, the, that's the, the city of King David, right? He wasn't known as Jesus from Egypt. Okay, there'd be some clout that came with that. In fact, there were even some people that tried to claim that, that, that the way Jesus did all his miracles was because he learned this magic in Egypt. Uh, it's nonsense and it has no source, but, but people try to do that. So if he'd have been known as from Bethlehem or from Egypt, that, that might have meant something. But what does it mean when you say he's a Nazarene? He's called a Nazarene. It means a nobody from nowhere. Who is this man? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's despised and rejected by men. One commentator said it like this. Nazarenes were despised, despised for their want of culture and their rude dialect. I read that and I thought, I can relate. I'm from Pearl. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I can relate with that. Their want of culture and rude dialect, they are despised, he said. And all the prophets, you know what all the prophets said? He'll be called a Nazarene. Now, where did the prophets say that? Where did the prophets say stuff like that? And I'll just give you a few verses. They said it in verses just like this. Isaiah 53, listen to verse 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's what it's like to be called a Nazarene. He says it's not about his location. It's about his reputation, his reception with the people. And this is not expected. You got a Messiah that's been promised since Genesis 3.15? Surely he'll come in with some clout. Surely he'll come in riding on horses and everyone will admire him. But no, it says he's despised. He's rejected. He's hated. No majesty that anybody would look on him. No beauty that anybody would recognize him. Zechariah 9.9 says he came in as one lowly, riding, not on a steed, Riding on a donkey, a foal of a donkey. He came in lowly, 
riding on a donkey. He came in like Joseph. Joseph points him. Joseph, remember, became king. The, at the, sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh, he became king. But how did he get there? He came through slavery and bondage and betrayal. Or David. David became king of his people, king of Israel. But think about when he, got, when he was chosen. Do you remember it? There's his dad. And he knows that Samuel's coming to pick a king, right? And so the dad gathers up his sons that he, think might, he thinks might qualify. Guess who didn't get picked? David. Not this son, not this son, not this son. Do you have any more sons? Yeah, we didn't bring him in. He's out with the sheep. And that's the one. Despised, rejected, lowly. He shall be called. Matthew says, and here's the way Matthew talks about that. He shall be called a Nazarene. That's what all the prophets said. Despised and rejected. So all the prophets, we could keep going. All the prophets, all these examples of, of, of Joseph and Moses and David and on it goes. It says this, that the, the Messiah would be lowly. He would be of humble roots. He would be despised. He would be rejected. And one of the ways that God makes sure this happens is he guides this child Jesus to Nazareth so that he would be called a Nazarene. Can anything good come out of that place? And what's interesting is you see it, you, you read the book of Acts, and even after he's died for sinners, he's resurrected, he's ascended, and he's sitting on his throne, people still call him Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Even today, I remember the first time I ever heard somebody pray that was, was our brother Alan Daniel, and he prayed, he prayed, oh, Jesus of Nazareth. I thought I'd never heard anybody pray that before. And what's being communicated in the book of Acts, and when Alan says it and others, when you say Jesus of Nazareth, what's being communicated? He's the lowly one. It's, it's exalting his humanity. He's the, he became human. He took on flesh. But even more humiliating than that, he went, to, the, he went to, to die on a cross in a humiliating, horrible death. Lowly, rejected by men. And willing to endure the humiliation to save wicked sinners like us. Jesus of Nazareth. Now let's close with this. Oh, what is a practical takeaway? Everybody loves practical takeaways. What is a practical takeaway from Matthew 2, verse 13 through 23? And maybe you can make some stuff up. You say, well, don't be a Herod, right? Don't be like Herod. Um, evil man, don't be like that. Or maybe you could say, be, uh, be, be lowly. Be humble and lowly, like a Nazarene. Now move to Pearl. Okay. <laughs> maybe that's your takeaway. But I want to get you. I want to give you what what actually is. The, the, you know, you might see different things here. It's fine in application. But what is the takeaway? I want to give you the takeaway here. Okay, and this is this is it. Are you ready? Worship Jesus. Now, don't take what I just said lightly. That's not a cop out. I'm not saying oh I couldn't think of application, so just worship Jesus. Okay, this is the takeaway. Listen to me. Worship Jesus is the reason you exist. It's the reason the Gospel of Matthew is written in this particular passage is written that all of the history of Israel points to Jesus because listen, you need to worship him. 
It's the reason you breathe. It's the reason you were saved. It's the reason you live where you live and work where you work. It's, it's for the glory and worship of Jesus. And I mean broadly, I'm not talking about worship as in just singing. That word worship, it has the word worth in it. To ascribe to Jesus the worth that is due him in everything that you do. Worship Christ. This is what Matthew's calling us to. So maybe think of it like this. Matthew, Matthew's sort of given us a, uh, a speaker's introduction. Okay? You know what that is? A speaker's introduction? Like, like if we had, you know, if we had Vody Bauckham come speak here, you know, maybe I stood up here and I gave a little introduction. Here's Vody Bauckham. He did the, you know, I'm giving the introduction, and then he walks up, right? So the greater the introduction, the greater the speaker, right? So if I stand out here and I say, you know, I'm trying to give all his attributes. He's got 14 degrees from Harvard and fought in this war and did that, you know, and I'm given all these attributes. The, the greater the introduction, you're intru the, the greater the speaker that's coming, right? Okay. I want you to think about Matthew giving a speaker's introduction here. And so what is this, what is this, what is Matthew pointing to, which is the glorious introduction of this speaker, the word incarnate, Jesus? What, what's the introduction that's being given? And Matthew's reminding us that it's the entire Old Testament. All of it introduces him. There's a verse, Luke 24, verse 27. It says, listen to this, beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded to them in all of those scriptures the things concerning himself. From Moses, that's the, that's the Torah, from Genesis all the way to the prophets to Malachi. He said, look, this is where it's about me. This is where it's about me. It's the introduction of Jesus. The whole Old Testament. So if I, so if I intro Vody Bauckham, I'm up here for what, five minutes? You know, Vody Bauckham did this, and he wrote these books, and, he did, you know, and I'm giving the introduction. The, the word incarnate has a centuries-long speaker's introduction to get him ready. The greater the introduction, the greater the speaker. Now, what in the Old Testament, what in our Old Testament prophesies Christ, or what in our Old Testament introduces Jesus? The predictive prophecies? Yeah, of course, there's hundreds of them. The law? Does the law introduce Jesus? Yeah, it does. You better figure out how if you don't know. The ceremonies, they introduce Jesus. All the sacrifice, they introduce Jesus. And then Matthew's telling us here that from the exodus to the exile, the whole history of this people introduces Jesus. How are you going to introduce the Messiah, God? I'm going to raise up a whole nation. And I'm going to guide their ways and what they do from exodus to exile. It's going to point to my son. It's going to point to Christ. So how's that for a speaker's introduction? Is he praiseworthy? Is he worthy of your worship? And if he is, this is why I say this is the takeaway. Don't take it lightly. Brothers and sisters, worship Jesus. Worship him in the secret place. Get alone somewhere in secret place of prayer with an open Bible. Not just to learn a thing or two, but to worship King Jesus. In your obedience, worship Jesus. In your ministries, you go out and serve him. Worship Jesus. Psalm 34 says, His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
in corporate worship and singing, worship Jesus. In your affections, worship Jesus. When it's hard, every whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Worship Christ. He's worthy. He's worthy. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy, and we give you praise. Thank you so much, God, for your word and for showing us our King, our Messiah, our Savior. And Lord, I pray for every soul here, every individual soul, Lord Jesus, that they would, that they would know you, that we would all know you deeply, intimately. And God, make us a church full of true worshipers. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.